Hi, I'm your host, Monique James, and welcome back to another episode of True Crime Addict. If you are enjoying the show, then make sure to subscribe so that you get each new episode the day that it drops. Also, if you want to see pictures from each week's story, then go check out the website at truecrimeaddictpodcast.org. Last week, I introduced you to the story of Maddie Reston and Patty Pritz, and I promised you that things had only just begun to get interesting. So, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, make sure to go back and listen to part one of this story before continuing with this episode. For those of you who already listened to part one, I'll give you a little recap before jumping back in where we left off. In August of 1961, Maddie Reston and Patty Pritz were found murdered off a rocky road in Rocky Arroyo, New Mexico, less than a mile off the Artesia Highway, by two rabbit hunters. Just two nights before their bodies were found, the girls had been walking home after a night of unchaperoned fun at their local amusement park. A witness believes he saw the girls get picked up by an unidentified man right outside his family's house. And after searching and coming up empty for months, the police finally caught a break in July of 1962 when Buddy was picked up by police in Monahans, Texas. After falsely accusing several men of the crime, Buddy finally confessed and he was arrested. Then after just two days of his preliminary hearing, Buddy was bound over to district court to face charges of first-degree murder. However, everything is not as it may seem. This is True Crime Addict. After Buddy's preliminary hearing, his attorneys got right to work trying to get his preliminary hearing reopened on the grounds that no provision had been made to preserve testimony on his behalf from any out-of-state witnesses that might not be available during the trial. Since the murders happened in New Mexico, the trial was going to be held there, but Buddy wasn't from New Mexico, so anyone who could potentially testify on his behalf would be from out-of-state. Judge Neal, the judge who presided over Buddy's preliminary hearing, had already been removed as a contender for the trial, and Judge Luis Armijo was chosen to preside over Buddy's arraignment. However, Buddy's arraignment was delayed because Judge Armijo granted a continuation of Buddy's preliminary hearing. After the DA and assistant DA got wind of the continuance, they made a counter move and decided to seek a writ of prohibition from the state Supreme Court. Essentially, if they were able to get the state Supreme Court to uphold the writ of prohibition, it would bar the jurors in the trial from being able to hear any of the testimony that was taken during the continuation of the preliminary hearing that was granted. But the DA's office wouldn't hear back about the results of their writ of prohibition for months. And during that time, the continuation of Buddy's preliminary hearing took place, and some interesting information was brought to light. On October 31st of 1962, 
the continuation of Buddy's preliminary hearing began, and three witnesses testified on Buddy's behalf that they had not only seen him the day before the murders occurred, but that they had also seen him on the day of the murders in San Antonio, Texas. Now, this doesn't mean that Buddy still couldn't have made his way to Carlsbad after he was seen. It just makes it less likely because from San Antonio to Carlsbad is almost a seven-hour drive. And in what would appear to have been another ploy to delay Buddy's trial, his attorneys had him admitted to a state mental institution right after his hearing to have a psychiatric examination to determine if he was insane. Buddy was held under examination until January 15th, of 1963 when he was released and it had been determined that he knew right from wrong and could therefore stand trial. The matter of whether or not he was actually criminally insane was to be left up to the jury in his trial to decide. So, Buddy was taken back to the county jail to await his trial. While awaiting the trial, the ruling from the state Supreme Court came back and it definitely wasn't what either side was expecting because the court ruled that a brand new preliminary hearing should be held. The court had decided that Judge Neal had erred by not allowing several of the defense witnesses to testify, but they also decided that Judge Armijo had further erred in his attempt to correct Judge Neal's errors by reopening the preliminary hearing. So, in order to correct things, the case against Buddy was dismissed and the charges were refiled. Upon the dismissal of the case, Buddy's attorneys, Lusk and Walker, were relieved of their duties since they had been court-appointed. But as luck would have it, they both ended up getting reappointed to Buddy's case. However, that luck wouldn't last long because Buddy's new preliminary hearing was postponed several times as he waited in the county jail because one of the witnesses for his defense was in the hospital and unavailable. Finally, on July 3rd, Buddy's new preliminary hearing got underway. After this new hearing, Judge Kermit Nash ordered Buddy to be sent for another psychiatric examination. However, this time, it was a more in-depth examination that consisted of two parts that both took months to complete. In October, while Buddy was still having his psych eval done, his mother did an interview with the Albuquerque Journal and told them some things about Buddy that had never been previously released. Mrs. Parsons said, that Buddy was born mentally retarded. She claimed that he didn't know the alphabet, he couldn't read, and the only thing that he knew how to write was his nickname, Buddy. Mrs. Parsons went on to detail to the reporter that when Buddy was first picked up, he was held for several weeks without any counsel, and it was during that time that he had printed Buddy on the confession, but he didn't even know what a confession was or what the one he signed actually said. Mrs. Parsons finished her interview by saying that Buddy was never even taught how to drive a car because he couldn't be responsible. The interview with Mrs. Parsons was a bombshell because up until that point, no one in the public was aware of Buddy's condition. The police and the prosecution had conveniently left any mention of Buddy's mental state out of any of their statements to the public. But Mrs. Parsons' interview may have been more influential than she could have ever imagined because on January 23rd of 1964, just five days before Buddy's trial was set to begin, DA Pat Hannigan filed a no prosecution motion, which in layman's terms means that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute Buddy, meaning that after 18 months in custody, 
Buddy was cleared of all the charges against him, and he was free to go. When asked about dropping the murder charges, the Albuquerque Tribune reported that D.A. Hannigan had told Buddy's attorneys that he had reviewed the evidence that was produced in the preliminary hearing, and that, coupled with the psychiatric reports, showed that there was insufficient evidence for prosecution. However, by dropping the charges before going to trial, that would leave the DA's office free to refile charges at a later date if they were to find additional evidence. Okay, so we're going to stop here for a second and take a moment to dissect the entire police investigation into Buddy Parsons, because the investigation reeks of either poor police work, a cover-up, or possibly a little bit of both. Buddy's investigation was riddled with issues from the very beginning. If you'll remember from the first part, I told you that Buddy was picked up in Monahans, Texas by police who claimed that he had volunteered information about the murders of Maddie and Patty. However, it turns out that that isn't the whole truth. When Buddy went for his second psych eval, he saw Dr. Elsa Brumlup, and she was able to get a much more clear picture of how the events of Buddy's interactions with the Monahans police actually went. When Dr. Brumlup began evaluating Buddy, it didn't take long for her to realize that Buddy had a speech defect that made it extremely difficult for him to be understood. Dr. Brumlup told the Las Vegas Daily Optic that Buddy's speech defect was so severe that even those who had been close to him still had difficulty understanding him. She said that what Buddy says could be interpreted any way the questioner wanted it to be interpreted. So, on the night in question, when Buddy was picked up by the police, he had left his family's home in Artesia, New Mexico, where they had just moved to a few months earlier from San Antonio, Texas, to hitchhike to Willis, Texas to see his grandmother who had cancer. One of the rides that Buddy was able to get dropped him off in Monahans, Texas in the middle of the night. That's when the police came across Buddy while he was waiting to hitch another ride. The police stopped to question Buddy and to find out where he had come from. Because of his speech defect, Buddy wasn't able to pronounce Artesia, and so the police began mentioning towns that were close to Monahans. When they hit upon Carlsbad, Buddy's face lit up. So the police took that to mean that Buddy was from Carlsbad, and since the murder case of Maddie and Patty was still open, they asked him if he knew of two little girls in Carlsbad, and Buddy said that he did. However, Dr. Brumlup discovered that the reason Buddy's face had lit up when the police mentioned Carlsbad was because Buddy had been there in 1959 visiting his sister and her family. And the two little girls that Buddy admitted to knowing that lived in Carlsbad were his two little nieces. Buddy's mental retardation had kept him from being able to realize the road that the police were leading him down. But I don't for one second believe that the police didn't know that Buddy may have been a little slow, because once they had decided that he had to have had some kind of connection with the murders of Maddie and Patty, they contacted the Edie County Sheriff's Office, and when the Sheriff's Officers went to pick him up, they misled him by telling him that they were going to be going near his home and so therefore, they could give him a ride. They had to do that because at that point, Buddy still wasn't under arrest and they needed his consent. But instead of taking him home, they took him to Carlsbad and put him in jail. And at that point, they charged him with sodomy, a charge that they would later drop, so that they had a reason to hold him. The investigation into Buddy just spiraled from there. 
When the police realized that none of the men Buddy was accusing were actually involved, they changed tactics and that's when they came out and claimed Buddy had confessed to the murders. But since we now know that Buddy wasn't even able to read or write, it can only be presumed that the police wrote out the statement and had Buddy sign it under false pretenses because they didn't have any evidence linking Buddy to the murder and even the confession didn't add up. In the confession, Buddy had stated that he used a stick to stab Patty after he had shot her, but the police never found a sharpened stick at the crime scene. Buddy had also stated that he had chased after Maddie and then shot her, but we already know from the autopsy report that Maddie was bludgeoned before she was shot. There were several inconsistencies in Buddy's confession, but instead of the police being concerned about those, they decided to try and force everything to make sense. Like the fact that Mrs. Parsons clearly stated that Buddy didn't know how to drive, which should have been the only thing the police needed to clear Buddy from the start. But instead of accepting the fact that Buddy definitely wasn't their man, the police doubled down and chose to try and make the facts fit their evidence. They took it to another level when they chose to be deceitful in how they presented their proof that Buddy could drive. Because when Chief Deputy Dan McGrew testified that they had taken video evidence of Buddy driving, he conveniently left out the part where they had cut the video so that you wouldn't see Buddy running off the road when he had attempted to stop and turn. What it all boiled down to was the fact that once the police had Buddy in their sights, they didn't want to come up empty-handed again. So instead of admitting that Buddy wasn't even capable of having committed the crime, they drug out the proceedings for 18 long months before the DA had the good sense to stop things before they could go any further. After the release of Buddy, the police continued to investigate the murders, but with no new leads and 18 months down the drain, the case eventually went cold. And despite pleas from the families, nothing new happened in the case until investigator Jim Estrada took an interest in the case and officially got it reopened in January of 2003. Estrada believed that despite the unsuccessful efforts of the previous detectives, that the case was still solvable. One of the first things that he had done when he reopened the case was to have some of the evidence that had been preserved in the FBI lab in Washington to be submitted to a private lab to be further evaluated and to have DNA testing done. During the new investigation, Maddie's body was exhumed with the hopes that it would provide evidence that would help in solving the case. A story about Estrada's reinvestigation was run in the Carlsbad Current Argus and Estrada began to receive several tips from people who had been around in Carlsbad during the time of the murders. That combined with his new investigation led him down a road that the original officers either never saw or purposely chose not to take. During Estrada's new investigation, several new names came to the surface, one of those names being Charles Titus. Titus was one of the officers that had picked up Buddy in Monahans, Texas, and had said that he had mentioned the murders of Maddie and Patty. Titus is also the officer that went out of his way to make sure that he informed the Edie County Sheriff's Department about Buddy so that they could retrieve him. It also turned out that Titus, for unknown reasons, had traveled to Carlsbad three days after the bodies of Maddie and Patty had been found, and he had been taken to the crime scene by one of the Edie County deputies, and after spending most of the day out at the crime scene, Titus had offered his services to the deputy 
before he and his colleague had returned to Texas. Now, even before knowing how Titus may have been tied into the new investigation, it came across as extremely suspicious to me that a Texas police officer who had no jurisdiction or ties to New Mexico would show up at the crime scene of two young girls to essentially snoop around. Then by mere coincidence, that same officer was the person who discovered and turned over the only person who was ever even partially tried in this case. But I digress, because no matter what Titus's involvement may or may not have been in this case, he was never more than a pawn. But a pawn to who is the question? And the answer is probably one that you may have guessed at from the very beginning. Now, do you remember in the first part when I said that I'd later tell you about some new information that would eventually come to light that would put the Blairs at the center of the investigation? Well, we have finally reached the part where we get to dig a little more into the history of the Blairs. If you'll remember, Willie Blair was one of the hunters that found the bodies of Maddie and Patty. He was also the one who the police discovered had been tangled up in some molestation allegations in the previous year. Willie and Artel Blair had two sons, but the son that we're going to focus on is their son David. At the time of Maddie and Patty's murders, David was 20 and he lived with his wife Bonnie. That is, he lived with his wife Bonnie up until the night that Maddie and Patty went missing. Because on the night of August 11th, 1961, until the early morning of August 12th, Bonnie said that David had came home around midnight and he was worried and agitated. He had begun to pack a bag for himself without stopping to explain what was happening or where he was going. Shortly after David had gotten home, his parents had arrived and Willie had told Bonnie that a friend of theirs in Monahan's Texas had found a job for David and he had to leave immediately. So David left that night and he didn't return until mid-September. And when he did return, he came back on the bus and had no explanation for Bonnie as to where his car had gone. Now, if you remember, in Willie's statement that he gave to the police, he made a point to specifically say that after he and his wife had gotten back from fishing on the 12th, that they had spent some time with their friends before going to bed and that they hadn't gone out again that night. But according to Bonnie, that isn't true because they couldn't have been home sleeping and also taking their son to Texas at the same time. And just in case you didn't catch it, Bonnie said that they went to Monahan's, Texas, the same place that our snooping officer, Charles Titus, just so happened to be from. During his investigation, Estrada met with a man who had worked at the same potash mine as Bill Melton, the other man who had discovered the bodies. And this man told Estrada that he had overheard a conversation between Melton and one of the shift foremen in which Melton had stated that on the day that he and Willie had found the bodies, that was the first time that the two of them had ever been out hunting for anything together. He went on to say that Melton had indicated that as they were driving down the road, that he remembered that Willie, from a good distance from where the girls were, had started telling him to look over, and that when he had, he wasn't able to see what Willie was talking about. And it wasn't until they were almost up to the bodies that he had seen one of the bodies and they had returned to town to call the police. The man that Estrada spoke to 
also said that Melton had mentioned to the shift foreman that he had felt that Willie had known the bodies were there before they had even gone to the site. Now, in the original statement that Willie gave to the police, he clearly stated that Melton had come to him and had asked him to go fishing. But from the sound of things, the fishing slash hunting trip was all Willie's idea. So even though these things sound bad, they don't necessarily mean that any of the Blairs are guilty. However, the Blairs continued to do things that didn't paint them in the best light. Such as how in 1963, David Blair was sent to court for raping a young girl, yet somehow he only received a six months to five years suspended sentence because they reduced his charges to that of indecent handling. David also beat his wife Bonnie so badly that she miscarried twice. Bonnie also stated that Artel knew the judges that were in the office at the time that Maddie and Patty were murdered, and within days of one of the judges having visited the crime scene, Artel had given him a new pair of Tony Llama boots, which just so happened to be some really expensive cowboy boots. Then, in 1969, at the age of 28, David Blair got into a nearly fatal car crash that left him a quadriplegic, and after a few years, David's parents paid for his divorce from Bonnie so that they could take him home and care for him there. Before David's accident, Artel had been a nurse, but after his accident, she had decided to leave her job and take care of him full time. After David's accident, Artel never let him talk alone with anyone. And in an article that was published in the Carlsbad Current Argus in 1997, Artel talked about her fight to get David away from Bonnie and back to her home because she had believed that Bonnie was trying to have David's various organs tested to see their viability for organ donation. And when she talked about that, she told the journalist that she was determined that she wasn't going to let David die to let someone else live. Now, I'm not sure how many coincidences one is supposed to believe before they begin to start connecting the dots. But in the case of the Blairs, there seemed to be one too many coincidences surrounding them. And when Estrada tried to get Titus to come in for a chat, Titus refused, saying he'd only come in if Estrada would give him information about the investigation first. Titus also indicated that he wouldn't be willing to talk to anyone without Artel present as well. So now we've come full circle with the Blairs and Titus, and you've heard why David Blair was one of Estrada's number one suspects. But despite the headway that Estrada was making in Maddie and Patty's case, he unexpectedly retired in October of 2005, and Maddie and Patty's case immediately went cold again. Now, there's no specific reason that was ever given by Estrada as to why he retired. But in his case notes, he also noted that in 1972, three different officers had tried to get the case of Maddie and Patty reopened and they had been stonewalled. So it leaves you to wonder if maybe Estrada didn't retire because he wanted to, but he may have retired because he had stumbled upon something that he may not have been supposed to. There are a lot of different murders that happened surrounding this case after the case happened that seemed quite suspicious, such as the suicide of Chief Deputy 
Dan McGrew. Now, if you'll remember, he was one of the deputies that was investigating the case. And it just so happened that he committed suicide while he was on the phone with Charles Titus. After he committed suicide, it was suspected that he may have been involved in the murders of Maddie and Patty, but they could never prove anything, so they moved on. But it just leaves you to wonder, what really happened there? Maddie's sister Anne never gave up on her goal of getting justice for her sister and Patty. She continuously wrote to the newspapers and on blog sites about the girls' murders, and she kept pressing the Edie County police until in 2010, they eventually folded and sent Maddie and Patty's case over to VICAP, which is a unit of the FBI that works to apprehend violent criminals, and they began working on it. And that's where things still stand with this case. Although Anne is still actively seeking justice for her sister and Patty, the only real way that she can get that now is through DNA, because all of the key players in this case have now passed away. But even though there isn't anyone left alive to tell the tale of what truly happened that fateful night, Maddie and Patty's case doesn't have to go unsolved. This is just one of several theories that investigator Estrada had come to before he abruptly retired. And while this theory seems the most plausible, it's quite possible that the answer could lie somewhere else. We will never know for sure what actually happened to Maddie and Patty, but I honestly believe that this case is still solvable and that justice can still be had to give the families of Maddie and Patty the closure that they deserve after waiting over 60 years. You can find all the source materials for this episode on the website at truecrimeaddictpodcast.org. And I'll be back next week with a brand new episode.